I had a war chest of about three and a half million dollars. Mark Martin is strapping into his trolley. Based on what we had going on, I had enough money to do it for two years. Mark Martin from Batesville. Bill France Jr. gave me and Mark Martin an application to the 1988 Daytona 500. And not enough can be said for these guys that built this team from the ground up in two years. But if I didn't win a race, if I didn't show a blue sky to, to potential sponsors that wanted to get on board, there was an end in sight to my, uh, to my NASCAR career. The Motor Racing Network presents The Many Hats of Jack Roush. Mark Martin drives up high out of turn number four, comes out of the corner, and every person in this grandstand is cheering him on. He comes down and he will win the AC Delco 500. It has been a long, hard road for Mark Martin. I butted head. I mean, I had butted heads with Jack Roush, but I butted head with Jack a lot early in the years, but we made it and we did it together. Jeff Burton wins at Daytona. He takes the 42nd Pepsi 400. Everything that I do in my racing and, and uh, you know, when my son's racing and stuff, I always, one of the decisions I'm making, I always go through my mind, what would, you know, what would Jack do? Carl Edwards is a first-time winner in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. They did not hold one thing back from me. We gave it the best effort, and I think that's very noble, and I'm honored to be associated with him. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Woody Kane. Welcome to MRN Presents, the many hats of Jack Roush. I'm Woody Kane. In episode three of our journey through the life and accomplishments of Jack Roush, we enter the 1990s. Coming off a big win at Rockingham in 1989, the bar was set higher in 1990 for Jack and Mark Martin because they knew what they were capable of. Folgers was brought on board as a sponsor, and the number six team got right to work. Down to the inside of the racetrack, the Folgers Ford of Mark Martin now as the crowd stands up and cheers on the backstretch. Martin takes it clearly down the backstretch, back to turn three. Here's Mark Martin at the bottom of the speedway. The fans are on their feet cheering the young driver on as he comes down to take the checkered flag and win the Pontiac Excitement 400, finishing second, Dale Earnhardt. Mark won three races that season had 16 top fives and 23 top 10 finishes, which should have been good enough to win the championship. But, as Jack explains, one penalty changed all that. There were two things that uh, came to, into play. One was that uh, that there was a rule in the rule book that you can only run a two-inch spacer on your intake manifold. But subsequent to that, NASCAR published a bulletin that said you could weld any mount that you wanted to on top of an intake manifold. And so for 1990, we had a new car with different hood heights and uh, Air cleaners had not, I'd not offered yet a carbon fiber air cleaner alternative. It took your best fabricator probably three days to build a, a, an air cleaner that didn't compromise the performance of your engine. So Robin had his best fabricator build a, uh, an air cleaner for him. And based on the fact you could weld any mount you wanted to on top of an intake manifold, he made up spacers that went from half inch thick to three inches. And uh, on when we won the race at uh, Richmond that year, which was the second race of the year, uh, we had a two and a half inch spacer on our intake manifold. And Richard Childress called Bill France Jr. called and says, uh, says Mark Martin won uh, won the race today, but he said he did it with an illegal spacer. It says the rule book says you can only uh, only run a two inch spacer, and you can't run more than that. And he said he had a two and a half inch spacer on the car. The person who teched the car and teched the intake manifold and teched the carburetor approved it. Everybody knew that if you could weld as much as you wanted to on top of the intake manifold. That, uh, that it didn't it didn't matter how thick the spacer was because you could achieve that by welding. Well, we hadn't welded our spacer on, and, and Bill France uh, Jr. decided that uh, he was going to enforce the, the rule book rule and and not uh, and not consider the the text bulletin that that everybody had been racing on. So the deal was done. 
he was I think 46 points that it, they took they took the money and the points so so, so Bill told uh, Childress reportedly he says okay if that's true I'll take the money and the points he took the, all the, the money and he took the uh, the prize money and he took the points and I think we we lost uh, to Dale Senior that year uh, for the championship in 1990 it would uh, Mark was actually ahead going into the final race. They missed the setup on the car, and it, uh, they need to finish 10th uh, uh, or better to beat Senior. And I think Senior finished more than 10 points in front of Mark and won a championship, and it was it was over. Dale Earnhardt won his fourth championship, beating Martin by just 26 points. Martin says it was something they couldn't control. Well, we gave it, we gave it our best. We gave it our all. We worked tirelessly. We tested everywhere. We test. I don't know how many times we tested. I've heard some crazy, insane thing like 23 times or something. Man, we dug hard. We were going against the best, arguably the best ever in NASCAR, at his best. And we gave him a run for the money. What can you say? Where are we weak and what can we do to get better next year? That's what we said. 1991 proved frustrating compared to the season before. It was 32 races ago, the second race at North Wilkesboro last season when last Mark Martin was in victory lane, but that streak ends here in Atlanta on the final day of the 1991 season. Mark Martin wins the Hardy's 500, and Dale Earnhardt, the 1991 Winston Cup champion, will finish fifth. Mark didn't win until the final race of the season, while Dale Earnhardt won the championship again. 1992 brought a new sponsor, Valvoline, but no significant improvement in performance. It wasn't until 1993 that the team found its groove, winning four races in a row and five total for the season. By far the dominant car all day. Mark Martin half a lap from victory lane. Now one more time to turn number three. Martin hangs the hard left turn, gets back on the throttle. He's on his way off of turn four with the checkers in sight. He has waited all day after a three-hour rain delay at 7.30 Eastern time in the evening. Mark Martin makes it four wins in a row. Mark Martin wins the Mountain Dew Southern 500. I don't think Jack Rouse can believe the good fortune. The rest of the 90s seem to follow that pattern. 94 and 95 were good. 96 saw a slump. 97 and 98 were very good. But every solid year the team had seemed to come up short of a championship. If it wasn't Dale Earnhardt, it was Jeff Gordon. NASCAR Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace remembers having to race against Roush teams when they were at the top of their game. He always had a really durable car. Jack made good horsepower under the hood but it always was never the very, very best power. It was always good, reliable power that you wanted to try to win you a championship. But he never did roll over, man. That guy was dedicated, and he was one tough customer. And he demanded that in all his crew guys, too. I mean, if you work for Jack, you better stand up and get your job done because this guy wants a win because he's, let's, let's face it, he's won at everything, whether it's the 24 hours of Daytona or drag racing. This guy just wants a win at everything. So he very, very intent racer. Performance on the track wasn't the only reason Mark Martin was worried. He was unsure about adding a second team, not wanting to take resources away from his car. You know, I was apprehensive because I didn't feel like we were, I didn't feel like the six car was anywhere where, close to where it needed to be. And as far as, 
you know, running efficiently, strong enough, you know, uh, strong enough personnel-wise and everything. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sure about it. I was a little selfish. I wanted my program to be better. I didn't focus on the positives that it could bring, like the economic benefit of having a second team, some of the things that would help from an owner's standpoint. But adding a second team at that time didn't improve, didn't improve the six car. You know, and I wanted to improve the six car. That's what I was really interested in. It was a challenge to keep it from diluting the six car, obviously, because it, it drew from the six. The six was successful, the six had the sponsors, the six had, you know, all this stuff going. We barely had, you know, enough really great people for the six car and now you're gonna add another car. And you're gonna bring in all the people for this, this next car are junior to the people at the six car. So they're feeding off of the six car instead of feeding off of each other. It wasn't my fondest idea because I wanted the six car, I wanted, I wanted to race, I wanted to win. You know, I wanted the six car to be better. The number 16 car made its debut at the 1992 Daytona 500. Never as successful in the 90s as its teammate, Wally Dallenbach Jr. drove the 16 for two years, then Ted Musgrave, then Kevin LePage. Once Jack Roush decided to add teams, he didn't stop. Every few years, there was a new Roush teammate, but Jack says that's how he knew to make Roush racing successful. I started cup racing. It was a natural thing. I'd run uh, drag racing cars, multiple cars successfully. I'd run road race multiple cars successfully. And when uh, when we started uh, with our multiple cars with uh, with NASCAR, the speculation was that I was going to have a test team and one team was going to feed what, uh, what Mark needed and they would just be experimenting. That wasn't what I had in mind at all. I had in mind teams that were equally supported and, and equally funded and, and equally uh, able to be able to to give you the competitive result that uh, the sponsors were looking for. And that was at a time frame when we were expanding those teams, taking more teams on. That was a time when there were more sponsors that were one full car sponsorships and there were cars available. Started a, a second car with Family Channel uh, sponsorship. I started a third car with Exide uh, Batteries. Fourth car was with John Deere. There were sponsors standing in line for me to, to identify a driver and uh, to identify a, a, a crew chief and a, and a, and a team that could uh, support things. And had uh, NASCAR not put a rule on it that capped it at four, uh, I would have uh, probably had two sets of, of three cars each. I probably had six cars. At the 1996 Daytona 500, a third Roush team showed up with Jeff Burton behind the wheel of the number 99 Exide Batteries car. But according to Jeff, he wasn't even the first pick. You know, life life has funny turns about it. And and uh, my racing career, uh, the, the early part of my racing career is it could write a novel about and, and all the twists and turns and uh, interesting things that happened. And, and this was certainly one of them. Actually, the, the first phone call was made um, to Ward about, you know, what he consider driving for Jack with this new team being formed. And Ward was happy where he was and 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 had had decided he was gonna stay loyal to Bill Davis and, and, and the things that were going on there and the manufacturer that was there and and so Ward and I had, had this casual conversation, you know, about this this guy, 
you know, this guy named Jeff Smith had given him a call from Roush, and they were thinking about starting a team, was curious about talking to him, and he wasn't interested because he was, he was doing what he was doing, and I said, well, hell, give me this Jeff Smith's phone number. <laughs> so I called Jeff, and I, and I said, hey, uh, Ward told me, and he says, well, yeah, let's, let's talk. So uh, a few days later, I was in Livonia, Michigan, and um, uh, meeting with Jack, and, and um, just, just ended up, I was driving at the time, I was driving for the uh, Savola Brothers, and uh, Billy and Mickey were, you know, really good people, and I actually had a contract with them. And I went to I went to Billy and I said, you know, I said, hey man, you know, I've got this offer, and it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's an opportunity for me to 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 step up into a a more funded team, a bigger team. This is like this is the break I've worked for for my whole life. And he said, well, let me think about it for a little bit. And he came back to me and he said, you know, if you think this is good for you, uh, we're, we're good with it. If if uh, we don't want to hold you back, if you feel like this is a step forward. And, you know, those, those kind of conversations are hard to have. But then when you're, you're dealing with people like Billy and Mickey, you know, they, they, you know, they didn't want to lead, they didn't want to lose me and they made it clear they wanted me to stay, which was very humbling. Uh, but at the same time, looked me in the eye and said, Hey, you know, if this is what you want to do, then, you know, we don't want to hold you back. And, and so it took this, you know, they could have said no, you know, they could have held me there and they didn't. Um, you know, Ward and I could have never had that conversation. Ward could have taken the, the, the deal. Uh, there were a lot of things that happened. Um, and then it was a perfect fit for me. Uh, Jack Roush and the way he does things was a perfect fit for where I was and where the sport was. Um, I regret we didn't win championships, but I don't regret being there because I learned more about me as a person uh, me as a race car driver, me as a person that was trying to do, trying to set up his own race cars and help build his own race cars at the cup level, Jack allowed me to do that. And, and I learned more in the time I spent at Roush Racing than I think I have in my entire life uh, because of the freedom given to me by Jack. And, and um, working with Buddy Parrott was one of the you know, bright spots of my career. Uh, being able to work with a legend like that, that 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 had this energy about him, this enthusiasm about him, it was hard working for Jack, but it was gratifying. And and um, you know you know the old saying, he'd give you just enough rope to hang yourself with. Well, that's Jack. And and uh, and you know one of the hardest conversations I've ever had was, you know, when I when I was decided to leave and go to work for Richard. Um, one of the hardest conversations I ever had was sitting down with Jack face to face. We had we had done most of it through through Jeff Smith, uh, the president of Roush Racing at the time, and 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 sitting down with Jack at Watkins Glen. You know, I'm not a, you know I'm not ashamed to tell you. I literally cried telling him that I was you know why I was leaving. It was and, and you know he already knew that you know we had already communicated, but the face to face conversation was really difficult because I. Again, although it was it was a uh, you know Roush Racing was not the easiest place to work, it was it was good for me and, and where I was in my life at that time and, and the things that I was willing to do and the things Jack was willing to allow me to do um, it was a it was a it was just a really really good fit. 
After being so opposed at first to adding teams to the Roush umbrella, Mark Martin saw the benefits of Burton and his team immediately and welcomed the competition. The Jeff Burton thing was a plus. It didn't go into the same shop, so it went into a Mooresville shop. And Jeff Burton was the best teammate I think I've ever had and still the best friend because of that. He, well, he's just the person he is. I don't even have to call him. It's just the person he is is amazing. He uh, brought so much to the table. Instead of asking for anything, he would bring something to you because he wanted to prove his worth. And he had Buddy Parrott and Bobby Hudson, Greg Zipidelli, and gosh, I, you know, all these guys that weren't the Liberty Bunch where we were, they were more immersed into the NASCAR bunch. So that team was owned by Jack, but it was run sort of separately. And that team taught us a lot, and they taught us a lot, and they upped our game. Not, But one of the reasons they upped our game is because now we had to beat them. But it helped us beat uh, the, the, the other guys, too. So they really brought a lot to the table. After that, I was probably more numb to adding race teams. I was more like impartial. So whatever, you know, it, it was okay. It wasn't really going to uh, dilute the six car at that point, you know, in time. In 1992, Roush Racing ventured into what is now the Xfinity Series with Martin driving the number 60. It turned out to be a very successful decision with multiple championships over the years. Ricky Craven doing everything to try to keep Mark Martin behind him. Michael Walter right on Martin's bumper. The three work their way nose to tail back to turn one. Martin looks to the outside. Here's Craven. He slips up the racetrack. Here's Martin underneath. Michael Walter goes underneath. Craven is back to third. The change up front down the back straightaway. Mark Martin now on the lead, he has brought Michael Waltrip with him into the second spot. Well, the, pro the program was around Mark Martin to start with, and uh, of course there were some some races that that you couldn't run both series because they were too far away from one another. The driver could not be in two places at the same time. So to start with, it was around Mark. It's only when we decided we were we backed away from the truck series and we were going to make it a uh, place to to vent or to vet uh, rookie. Uh, drivers headed toward the Cup Series that we decided to start running for championships. Once Jack saw an opportunity to build up a young driver's resume in the Xfinity Series before they moved to Cup, he put more resources into the teams. Well, there was a point in time when uh, when it was adequate to bring the uh, best judgments from, the rules were different, the wheelbase was different, but it was there was enough crossover it was adequate to bring the, the best judgments of your engineers and your, uh, your fabricators from the Cup Series to the, uh, to the Xfinity Series, or to the Bush Series as it was at the time. And uh, when that changed and it needed a, the rules got to be different enough and you need to do your own independent uh, uh, engineering and support, uh, you need to have a more or less equivalent uh, support group for the Xfinity Series as it did for the Cup. The, the cup sponsorship money and the cup uh, manufacturer involvement money is not enough to support that. So it was easier for us to win championships when we didn't have to have the, the independent uh, separate uh, equivalent structure as, as you do today. 
keeping with his expansion theme throughout the 90s, Jack also got involved with the newly created Truck Series in 1995 with the help of Ford. Truck Series grew out of an off-road racing interest that two or three of the owners had that were off-road racing that came to talk to NASCAR and said, if we built uh, car, trucks that were in line with your stock car series, would you, you let us uh, think about running the series so we could run our off we could run, step aside from our off-road racing, but run the stock car racing with trucks. But as soon as it looked like it was a for sure deal that uh, was going to survive, uh, I got involved with Ford. Ford probably contacted me. I don't recall the genesis of it, and asked me if I'd run a truck. And uh, I said, sure, run cars. We can run trucks. At that time, we are. I'm pretty sure we were already racing a, uh, a push car national car for Mark as well, and. Uh, Anyway, it was uh, it was great the sport uh, in the truck series. The trucks uh, with their their pickup truck beds and the the big side panels. Uh, you could you could have a truck much looser and it wouldn't get away from you as bad as a car would. So it was a good place for young people who hadn't driven stock cars to get up to speed and to, to get their feet wet. Roush Racing used the truck series as a stepping stone in their program to turn rookie drivers into champions. Some of the names Jack Roush is responsible for bringing in through this method are some of today's most recognizable names like Kurt Busch, Kyle Busch, Greg Biffle, Carl Edwards, and David Reagan. One little-known driver who Mark Martin pushed Jack Roush to look at seriously turned into a pretty big name. Kenseth now Jr. Dale Earnhardt Jr. appeals to the outside, can't make it happen. Matt Kenseth is going to win the Daytona 500. I met him in Dover in 1997, I guess I was driving for uh, Robbie and John Reiser and the, and the family there and uh, met met Mark Martin and uh, he recommended to Jack they hire me. They didn't know really for what, they didn't have a spot for me at the time. I mean, the plan was really just, um, it was all on, on kind of Mark's, uh, Mark's say-so. I got fortunate, and uh, Mark thought highly of me and, and my potential for, for some reason. And uh, so he kind of just talked Jack into doing it. He's like, I mean, we need to sign this guy up. So, you know, when I signed there, it was really just to, to hang out, and I'd, I'd go uh, bother Jimmy Fanning and hang out at Mark's tests. I didn't get to drive much of the tests, but I got to drive a little bit, a couple of them, and um, just kind of hang out and learn and kind of start getting in the system. The 1990s saw Jack Roush develop his racing programs and his identity as a car owner. Jeff Burton only drove for Roush during eight of his 22 years in the Cup Series, yet says the way Jack ran his teams is like no other in the sport. You know, individual uh, accomplishments. I mean, winning that Texas race was huge for sure. Winning Daytona was a big deal because their plate program wasn't very good. Uh, finding a way to get that done, and we were really good there. Leading, all, leading every lap in New Hampshire. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, it was a strict plate race, and that's why you won't let every lap. No, we pass a lot of people. We just were lapping them when we passed them. You know, people say there was no passing. Yeah, yeah, we. I, I lapped Dale Earnhardt. So there was passing. It's just you had to have the right car and the right driver to do it on that particular day. And the reason we had the right car and the right driver is because we worked our ass off at it. A lot of people complained and bitched, and we went to work. And and on the day that we were rich, or Richmond, at a race, we were told that we were going to run a restrictor plate. And I went to Jack, and I said, I need a plate motor. I need, I told him all the things I needed. We're going to Milwaukee to test. I already had in my head how we were going to handle this. And everybody else was just complaining and, and bitching and moaning and groaning. It was going to suck. And we went to work. And Jack recognized that we went to work, 
and they went to work. They built a plate motor, they, they dynoed, they worked, they flew a motor to us on race weekend, and we kicked everybody's ass, not because they were plates, but because we worked harder. And, and that's, that's what Roush racing was all about. That was, the, that was it. There was this challenge, and we're not going to out-engineer anybody. We're, not gonna, we're, not go, we're going to out, outwork them. And that's, what, that's the epitome of what Roush racing was at that time. I can't say it is now because I don't work there, but it, you know, and so I don't know. But at that time, that's what it was. And very blue-collar, go-get-you-some kind of place. You know, it didn't matter what time it was. You were going to be there working. And that's why we won New Hampshire. And so, so to this day, people want, you know, people want to rewrite history. But Jack and myself and Buddy Parrott and, and Frank Soddard and all the people on the team, we know why we, we let every lap. It was because we worked. And we put more into it than everybody else. If the 90s were for Roush Racing to find its identity, then the 2000s were about showing strength and proving the team wasn't leaving. In the next episode, we look at Jack Roush building today's superstars through the 2000s on the many hats of Jack Roush. I'm Woody Kane. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The Many Hats of Jack Roush was written and produced by Rich Colbreth. Tyler Burnett, Alexa Henrian, and Brian Nelson. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. <laughs>